Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This is part three of our series on The Gray Whale. Parts one and two aired on Tuesday and Thursday of this previous week. Uh, this episode originally published on March 9th, 2023. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three, the final part in our series on gray whales. Now, in the previous uh, episodes, which if you haven't listened to yet, you should probably go back and check out parts one and two first. In the previous ones, we described the morphology and behavior of the, the species, uh, the scientific name Escherichtius robustus. They're, they're, they're the robust buddies, mm -hmm. uh, the gray whales. And we talked about their relationship with the barnacles that often uh, pile up on them like a, like a big old nasty crust. And we talked about their relationship with their main predator, other than humans, the orca. Uh, and today we're going to kick off addressing their amazing migratory habits. Habits, which is probably one of the main things to understand about this species. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and to, to sort of draw back to those previous episodes, uh, reiterate that I, I did get the, the chance to see gray whales in the wild at their breeding lagoons, a particular one of the, their breeding lagoons called Ojo de Liebre Lagoon. Uh, on the, the Baja Peninsula, about halfway down the Baja Peninsula. And uh, it was an amazing experience. So I'll refer back to, to some of my observations uh, alongside the, the various uh, cited materials that we're going to be referring to. Now, speaking of those breeding lagoons, in the last episode, you know, we mostly discussed these as the safe waters for the birth of the whale calves and uh, a reason for migration in gray whales in particular. Uh, but as highlighted in one of the, the books uh, that I was using here, Whales, Their Biology and Behavior by Hammond et al., there are other considerations to take into account concerning, first of all, just migration of baleen whales in general. Mm-hmm. 
So on the reproductive front, yes, protection from orcas does seem to be a major factor, particularly with gray whales. And there's the additional hypothesis that the, the whale calves just survive and grow better in warmer waters. It's also argued that it's simply energetically more efficient to swim to warmer waters than to overwinter up north. Uh, there is also more visibility and shelter in tropical waters. We talked, uh, and this comes back to um, orca survival to a large extent. We discussed the gray whale's ability to um, to seek shallower waters, and part of that is that there. Uh, it sounds like there are just more nooks and crannies uh, that the the whales may uh, venture into to find refuge. Yeah. So, for example, when gray whales are uh, threatened by orcas, it's been observed that they might try to seek shelter, say, in kelp beds or like uh, in, mm -hmm. in hiding in seaweed or even in breaking surf, which, uh, which apparently helps uh, obscure their presence. Yeah. And, and we'll come back to, to, to some more details about this in a minute. Uh, the authors here do stress, however, that there's just there's no one size fits all explanation. Uh, especially considering that there are various differences in behavior among the baleen whales in general. For instance, they mention that one factor for many baleen whales, again, not, not gray whales specifically, but, but other filter feeding whales, seems to be that during the summer, you have a stratification of the water column. Uh, to include a highly um, photic zone, resulting in rapid photosynthesis and reproduction of phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are the, the plant plankton. Mm -hmm. And these phytoplankton in turn feed the zooplankton, which of course are the animal plankton. Um, and this generally fattens up the entire ecosystem in these waters. But then in the winter, cooling temps and strong winds break up the stratification, mixing the vertical water column. Phytoplankton can't stay near the surface as easily. There's increasingly less sunlight and prey availability takes a dive as well. Mm, okay. So the, the plankton scene kind of dries up a little bit. Yeah. Now, as we mentioned in, I believe, the first episode, gray whales are, of course, rather different than a lot of the, the other baleen whales. I mean, all the other uh, extant baleen whales, uh, because they're not really going after um, things like kelp and zooplankton. No, they're going after those uh, benthic organisms like isopods in the sand on the sea floor. So they're not directly feeding, for the most part, on plankton. Uh, However, the benthic organisms down there are still part of the food web and are therefore impacted as well by all of this. Okay, so if you don't recall, we described their typical feeding behavior, I think, in part one of this series, where uh, unlike the whales, you've probably seen kind of like zooming around near the surface of the water and just like uh, letting water wash into their mouths and, and filtering out all of the plankton or the krill or whatever with their baleen. Um, the, the gray whales have a habit of slamming their heads into the sediment on the on the ocean bottom in relatively shallow areas to sort of like scoop up a bunch of this sediment and then get and like use their baleen to filter the organisms out of it and eat those. Yeah, exactly. Like basically scraping one side of their face across the seafloor. Now, there's another uh, interesting factor in all this. So we mentioned uh, in, pre in one of the previous episodes that gray whales have been observed in recent years overwintering in the Arctic and not making the migration uh, down south in rare instances. And I don't believe we're talking about reproductive uh, or, or currently reproducing females in these cases. But uh, basically, this is a situation where we have to consider climate change once again. We have to remember that climate change has some of its more drastic uh, effects in the Arctic. 
Um, and I was reading an interesting NOAA paper uh, dealing with some of this titled Sentinels of Change, Gray Whales in the Arctic, pointing out that less sea ice means more exposed ocean areas. And this alone has a huge impact on the environment. But they also point out the following. So in cold years, what you have happening first is a spring bloom of, uh, of plankton. But in the early spring, most zooplankton are not yet ready to graze. Meanwhile, the, the phytoplankton, uh, the, the, the plants uh, digging all that sunlight, um, they're just going crazy. And, and there's so much of it that the zooplankton are not, and the zooplankton are not ready to feed on it yet. So most of it ends up sinking to the bottom. And what happens at the bottom? Well, that's where the benthic organisms are, and they mm. feast on them. And again, that is what the gray whales are primarily going to eat, those creatures down there that just ate all of this phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. In warmer years, however, the sea ice melts too early. There's not enough light to really power up the spring bloom of phytoplankton. And so the phytoplankton bloom is delayed and it doesn't really hit until, uh uh-oh, the zooplankton is fully ready to feed, meaning that the zooplankton can eat most of it. There's less to rain down to the benthic organisms. Okay, so that sounds not great for gray whales. That's what it would sound right, yeah, because that's their primary feast down there. But what this particular paper stresses is that as warmer years likely continue due to climate change, we might see gray whales shift in their diet. So we mentioned that they're fairly opportunistic. So they will do some filter feeding in the upper portions of the, of, of the, of the water. Um, so if they aren't able to get what they would normally get down there at the bottom, or it seems like there's more, uh, say, zooplankton in the upper portion of the water column, then they will eat that and potentially eat that instead. So it's a situation where they outline that a couple of things might happen. We might just see them displaced from their traditional feeding grounds, but we also might see a portion of their diet shift more in favor of filter feeding upwards in the water column, eating more zooplankton than would normally make up their diet. And I think, uh, goodness, I'm trying to remember what the percentage was when we talked about it, but it's like a huge percentage of their known normal diet is those benthic organisms down there in the Mm -hmm. sand. So it's kind of a good news, not, I don't know if it's a good news, bad news situation, but anyway, it speaks to uh, th- these organisms have been around for a long time, and part of their ability to survive has been their ability to make reasonable adaptations. Yes, and I guess that brings us back to the issue of the migration, because what we're talking about right now is primarily uh, what's happening in their feeding grounds in the Arctic waters, but that's only half of the story. That's where they fatten up up north, uh, especially when we're talking about this uh, population of the uh, eastern Pacific gray whales. The other half of the story is reproduction, which involves a journey south. That's right. And this is quite a journey. Um, for, for the gray whales, the distance between their summer feeding grounds and their winter breeding grounds can exceed 20,000 kilometers. That's something like 12,427 miles. Now, uh, it's worth, worth uh, discussing again. Again, these are not deep ocean whales. Uh, and that makes sense given their diet. They primarily stick to uh, shallow continental shelf waters. They stick reasonably close to the coast. And therefore, we see that reflected also in the way they migrate between these two waters. They're not making a beeline from one area to the next. Their journey tends to be more coastal with some alterations, uh, depending on exactly what their circumstances are. Mm-hmm. Now, we mentioned that there used to be a population of North Atlantic gray whales. 
And it's thought that they would have fed around um, uh, Newfoundland, uh, the Gulf of St. Lawrence, Iceland, and Europe's North Sea. And it's thought that they would have found winter breeding refuges somewhere along the coasts of Georgia and the Carolinas here in the States, as well as uncertain spots along the coasts of Spain, Portugal, and Morocco. Now, this population was essentially extinct by the late 17th and early 18th centuries due at the very least in large part to whaling, if not largely to whaling or entirely to whaling. Uh, Interestingly enough, there have been proposals to try and uh, reintroduce North Pacific gray whales into this region to restore the population. I think we mentioned this previously. And there's also the possibility that they may recolonize the area themselves as the f- uh, in the future as sea ice melts and opens up these waters to them once again. So the North Pacific population potentially recolonizing the North Atlantic. Uh, but that's, uh, that's kind of hypo- hypothetical. We're not sure exactly how that would, would pan out. Though I guess it's always possible because occasionally you do find uh, whales like way outside of their their normal ranges, right? They just kind of pop up in strange places that that you don't usually find them. Yeah, there are a couple of uh, outstanding examples of that that Carbonine points out. A single gray whale was sighted off the coast of Israel in 2010. And in 2013, one was seen off the coast of Namibia. And it's uncertain exactly why in both of these cases. Uh, Hammond et al. point out that their origin was was almost certainly the North Pacific population in both cases, though. Yeah, that's great. How would they get that far away? Yeah. I mean, I guess we know they can swim a ways due to their, to their uh, habitual migrations. But uh, yeah. You want to know the story of that wandering whale. Yeah. Now, now coming back to that, uh, uh, that now extinct uh, North Atlantic population, uh, quick outlander note uh, about for everyone out there. <laughs> I was reminded of this. My, my wife reminded uh, me that we had watched this. But the, the television series uh, adaptation of Outlander has a scene set on the coast of South Carolina. And again, this is about time travelers going back in time in which uh, two of our time-traveling characters remark about some whale activity off the coast and how they wouldn't have seen this in their original timelines or in the original you know, times. And the footage they use in the show, I had to check it. It's not gray whales that they're, they're using here, I believe. Uh, but it certainly made me think of this scenario. That like, yeah, if you went back in time before uh, human whaling activity seemingly had a chance to just drastically alter uh, the um, uh, the ecosystem in the Atlantic, you would have potentially seen these gray whales. Like, uh, it would have been possible for me to see gray whales in my home state of Georgia, uh, potentially, uh, without having to, you know, travel to the other side of the continent and then to another country. Mm-hmm. And when is this uh, set in Outlander? Is this like early 18th century or something? Yeah, the initial uh, transplant, I think, is from 1945 to 1743. Okay, okay. Yeah, and and certainly, as we'll discuss, given the um, the po- the population changes in the gray whale, like 1945 was a bad time for the gray whale. Uh, anyway, this also reminded me of something that our, our previous guest on the show, this was, I think was while you were you were out, Joe, I talked with Ryan Tucker Jones, author of the book Red Leviathan, which is largely about uh, Soviet whaling in the industrial age, but it also discusses just the history of whaling in general, and it uh, it's it's a fascinating look at like why the, uh, the the Soviet Union got increasingly into whaling during the uh, industrial age, and uh, the impact of it, what was also learned scientifically from it, 
And there's a, there's a bit in that, this is just from the introduction, where he writes, quote, As someone who grew up in Oregon and California in the 1980s, I experienced the ocean at the whale's lowest point, an ocean that had been created by the Soviet Union as much as anyone. The history of Soviet whaling belongs to anyone who looks out to the sea and sees nothing. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's it's there are a lot of really haunting moments in uh, uh, in, in the book, uh, and, and just a lot of great uh, details. Certainly, go back and listen to that interview for more, or or just check out the book. Just a reminder that the gray whale, in particular, was hunted near the point of extinction by humans. We slaughtered them on their migration routes. We slaughtered them in their northern feeding grounds, and we slaughtered them in their breeding lagoons. Uh, they were afforded full protection in 1946, though Soviet whalers took uh, 320 under scientific permit in 1960, along with another 138 illegally. Uh, these figures, according to Carwadine. Hmm. Uh, and Carwadine, just in case... You don't remember, I haven't cited him in this episode, but that's Mark Carwadine's Handbook of Whales, Dolphins, and Porpoises of the World. But adding more context from Jones here, he notes that by the end of the classical age of whaling, so the pre-industrial, you know, sailing age of whaling, the sort of Moby Dick era of whaling, Mm -hmm. quote, humans, mainly Americans, had reduced Pacific gray whales from around 24,000 to a remnant population of 2,000. Atlantic gray whales were entirely extinct. And so from what I understand today, Atlantic gray whales, they are gone for for all we know. And then there are the two populations. There is the western Pacific gray whale, which uh, lives along the uh, eastern coast of the Asian mainland. That population is in uh, is from what we can tell in pretty rough shape today. Uh, I don't remember how many individuals it's down to, but it's estimated to be pretty low. Whereas the eastern Pacific gray whale along the uh, coast of... uh, of North America is doing okay. Yeah. And it, in terms of the like, classical and industrial whaling, like it, certain species were impacted more in different, uh, in different phases. So the gray whales were, were slower and, and they tended to be closer to shore. So in many respects, they were easier to catch during that classic age of whaling, though, like we mentioned, they, they were the devil fish. They could certainly put up a hell of a fight as well. Um, but as the age of industrial whaling brought many of the faster species like blue whales and fins into the sort of whaling fold here, um, those whales had fewer defenses against whalers. Uh, they'd really only ever had to contend with orca, uh, Jones writes. But meanwhile, in the age of industrialized Soviet whaling, quote, gray whales were particularly tricky. Soviet whalers noted that despite being slow, the gray was the only whale and he quotes, about which no rules of catching have been established. Mm. Only on rare occasions did greys move in a straight line. Instead, usually swimming in zigzags, making movements to one or the other side without determined direction. Science, the Soviets hoped, might help establish some or other pattern to its movement. I wonder if the ways that different whales react to reacted to threats by human whalers was affected by the different strategies these species had for dealing with orca. Mm. Uh, now, obviously, the threats posed by human whalers and orca are going to be of a very different shape and nature. Uh, but maybe some anti-predator strategies aimed at orca were just also just also happened to, by coincidence, be better at evading human whalers. Yeah, it sounds likely because certainly the, the one of the things about the industrial age is you just had faster ships and they could keep up with uh, with with whales and they could get those whales that were further out. 
So gray whales in, in the North Pacific were greatly reduced by this time, and those that remained were even, were even harder to acquire. Uh, Jones also notes that by 1936, the average size of gray whales captured was greatly decreased, and the reasoning here was, quote, the population was no longer seeing its members to adulthood. Because, mm. again, these are creatures that can live, I think, upwards of late, like 80, 80 years or so, if I'm remembering correctly, and they're just, they, uh, that's how impacted the population was. Now, today, Carwoodine notes that while gray whales in general have greatly rebounded, and like if you look them up online, you'll you know, quickly see that they're listed as least concern as far as conservation status goes, which is, which is great news. That's a heck of a comeback story. But they're still threatened by oil and gas developments in the Arctic and, and declining sea ice. Other threats include entanglement in fishing gear, occasional illegal harpooning, chemical pollution, noise pollution, ship collision, and the expansion of sea salt production in Baja, California. Uh, in my own experience uh, down there in Baja, California, I mean, the lagoon that we ventured out to in order to see the whales was surrounded pretty much only by salt industry projects. So um, I can understand where that would be a concern. Carwoodine also notes that while the eastern North Pacific group is doing great at the moment, there was, uh, you do see some fluctuations. So there was a 651 whale die-off in 1999 through 2011, and that would have been like a 23% population die-off. Uh, though, though this doesn't necessarily reflect long-term survivability, uh, according to the NOAA. Uh, you, you can, you know, have big swings in population like that, and it doesn't necessarily speak to how the species is doing long-term. But that western North Pacific population, uh, like we said earlier, uh, this one, according to Carbodine, is, quote, uh, one of the most endangered whale populations in the world. So even though the species at whole is doing better, we're mostly looking uh, at, the, um, at the eastern North Pacific group as opposed to the western North Pacific group. Again, to whatever extent, that's a true separate population because we do see overlap uh, in their breeding and behavior. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So getting more back into just the the migration patterns here that are pretty fascinating, um, we have the North Pacific gray whale to contend with here, and you have these two basic groups. Uh, the eastern North Pacific grays migrate between those Baja California breeding lagoons and summer feeding grounds in the Bering, Chukchi, and Beaufort Seas, though this range is expanding as the ice opens up again. Uh, the western North Pacific grays migrate between winter breeding grounds somewhere in the South China Sea to summer feeding grounds in the Sea of uh, Okhotsk and parts of Kamchatka, and there is some mixing of these groups in both summer and winter. Now, the eastern North Pacific grays have the longer of the two migrations, spanning up to 50 degrees of latitude, according to Carwadine, and the shortest return journey for these whales is about 12,000 kilometers, or or about 7,456 miles. He adds that the longest documented migration of any mammal was a female gray whale with a 22,511-kilometer round trip between Sakhalin Island, Russia, and Baja, California, Mexico. So that would have been, again, that we were talking about how there is overlap in the ranges of uh, the eastern and the western. Mm. Now, note that there's also apparently a 200-strong Pacific Coast feeding group that doesn't migrate all the way up to the Arctic at all, but feeds off a coastal area stretching between northern California and southeast Alaska. And there's another group that feeds in Puget Sound. Mm. So, all right, here are the stages of the migration. Um, and in, in covering these stages, we're going to hit on some of the things we've uh, discussed already, but uh, tr- try and keep it reasonably succinct here. But first, uh, we'll start with leaving the Arctic, okay? They've been feeding... Uh, The the whales have been feeding up north, and the signal to head south seems to be a combination of the formation of sea ice and the decreasing day length. 
Apparently, 90% leave the Bering Sea through Inamac Pass on a 60-day journey to Baja, California. Near-term mothers leave first, then other adults, then immature females, and then immature males. The last are on their way south, while the first group is already on their way back north again. Oh, that's interesting. The orca threat is far less during this part of the cycle. Uh, again, referring back to the, to the orcas, the orcas are, are, are intelligent and cunning in their hunting of these dangerous, uh, these fearsome uh, prey species. So uh, at this point, the whales have been feeding all summer long. Uh, so they're 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 fueled up. They're uh, they're ready to fight, and their their calves are 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 even larger than they were previously. So everybody's stronger. Everyone's well fed. Uh, it's not to say the the orcas won't feed or won't attempt to to acquire prey, but this is not the optimal time to do it. And a reminder of what we talked about last time, uh, this would be related to the fact that orcas are going to be uh, mostly trying to prey on newborn whale calves for their return journey coming up the migratory corridor uh, back to the feeding grounds because uh, uh, a healthy adult gray whale is is a pretty hard target uh, and yeah. orcas are – observed to not never, but very rarely try to attack a healthy adult. Usually what they're trying to do is separate a young calf and, and prey on it. Yeah, exactly. So they make their way south, and then it's lagoon time. And uh, there are three main areas that they gather here. The exact amount of time spent in the lagoons varies depending on uh, sex and the presence of, of calves. Uh, females with young calves just are going to hang out far longer because you know they, they need to bring get that uh, uh, that young one up to to weight up to strength before they head back out again whereas like a male that's come down to breed you know obviously he doesn't have to stay as long he's he can head back up as soon as he's ready as we've discussed these waters provide shelter against the orca but they don't provide food uh, the adult whales don't feed while they're in the lagoon uh, and uh, the, the whales that are born here well they drink their mother's milk and of course that is you know just going to sort of drain the uh, the mothers even more so this makes it really important that they fatten up as much as possible before the journey south exactly yeah like we said, they seem safe from the orca here because the orca are hesitant to enter into shallow waters where they won't be able to employ their full range of pack hunting techniques. And also where, we, I don't know if we mentioned this either, but there are a lot of, of whales in these waters. Like when I was out there, you'd see just, they were everywhere. There were just hundreds of them. In fact, I, I saw the, they, they had a, a, a tallied count even uh, at the, the whale center there. And the uh, the, the figures, I'm, I'm pulling this up on my phone. I took a picture of it, but the uh, the total count for mothers with babies was 322. The lonely whale count was 287. So, like, this is just the count. But it was like 931 whales uh, already during that that breeding season. So, um, another reason, I guess, to tread carefully if if you're an orca, uh, you know, you're going to go into this area where you can't use all of your tactics, and there are tons of whales that, as we mentioned, may work together against you if you present yourself as a threat. Right. But that doesn't mean they don't know about these lagoons. That doesn't mean they don't occasionally even venture in on a scouting mission. Uh, they're out there beyond the limits of the lagoons, um, more or less waiting. Because, again, as Carvedine points out, the orca choose to strike, quote, when natural features tip the balance in their favor. All right. So, but eventually it's time to head north. Again, these, they haven't been feeding. Everyone needs to get back to those feeding grounds. 
So first, all the whales except mothers and calves leave. They tend to take the more direct route that has brought them there. So, for instance, if there's a, uh, they, you know, they, they stick more or less to the coast. But if there's an area where there's like a bay or something or a little inlet, they're more, more likely to just go straight across uh, that inlet instead of hugging the coast through all the nooks and crannies. Right. A little more as the crow flies. Right. But when the mothers and calves leave, uh, this is uh, about one to two months later, uh, the calves have grown stronger on milk, and uh, it's uh, and they're they're far more prepared than they were to head out into these dangerous waters. But it ends up also being a longer trip for them because they are going to stick closer to the shore. Uh, they are going to travel around all the contours of the shore you know, as much as as possible, uh, rather than crossing or cutting corners. And I, I think it's pretty obvious why. Right, because as we discussed last time, one of the main anti-predator strategies of the gray whale uh, trying to get away from an orca attack or orca harassment is to retreat into the shallows where the orcas uh, certainly can't attack effectively and often won't even try to follow. Right. So for this reason, they tend to stick within 200 meters or about 656 feet of the shore, often moving through kelp beds. Now, this is definitely the most dangerous part of the, the whole migration cycle, though, uh, in general, the return trip, uh, because the, the calves have had a month or two to grow and gain strength, but they are still at their most vulnerable during this leg. Uh, so, you know, the mothers that are protecting them have not fed in months. Uh, and then increasingly, as they move north, I mean, they're, they're also going to grow a little bit weaker. They, they've only had the, the milk to feed off of. And then, again, the orca are going to strike when conditions are most optimal for them. And generally, there are two major known attack spots along the journey, attack hotspots, as the literature refers to them. One of them is Monterey Bay in California, and the other is Alaska's Unamak Pass. Unamak Pass is the most popular of the two, and, and this has to do with the fact that both the mothers and the calves are kind of at optimal weakness here. This is further north on the return trip, so like th everything is tipping in favor of the, the orca at this point. And so a number are just going to be picked off during this period. That's just how it goes. That's the, the cycle of, of predation. But enough are going to reach those, uh, those northern waters. And at that point, this whole cycle begins again. They reach the northern waters. It's time to feed, to gain strength, uh, to fatten up, and the whole cycle continues. And of course, part of this whole cycle is the barnacles, <laughs> because the barnacle, again, those, those calves are born without the barnacles, but those barnacles will grow. The life cycle of the barnacles is tied up with the life cycle and the travels of these whales. That's right. We are never without our barnacles, are we? Whether metaphorical or literal. Uh, so gray whales, uh, just to do a quick refresher on our, our previous discussions about whales and whale barnacles, uh, gray whales and other species such as humpbacks and so forth are regularly found carrying a large load of barnacles. And a barnacle is a filter feeding crustacean. It's kind of like a tiny shrimp that is stationary for the adult portion of its life. So a barnacle will generally swim around as a larva, as a, as a youngling, and it will find a suitable substrate then cement its head to that substrate and then build a hard shell out of calcium carbonate plates. And these shells can uh, take many different forms. They can look like anything from a concrete pumpkin to a little volcano. And then they live by filter feeding. They wave these little legs called a cirri out in the water to catch bits of plankton and pull them in and eat them. Some species of barnacle specialize in living on the bodies of whales. 
And this is, of course, great for the barnacle because it provides a steady flow of water to feed from. Uh, barnacles often, uh, when they're not on whales, uh, many barnacle species try to like uh, find a spot in the intertidal zone where the tides are going to be moving waters over them in and out all day uh, because they need moving water to help catch their food, to bring food to them. I, I think the way we put it was that they need high foot traffic areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so latching onto a whale is a great adaptation. That's going to have water flowing over you all the time as the whale swims. Uh, but also it's very helpful in that it provides protection from predators. And you can see some evidence of this in the size that whale barnacles grow to and in the fact that they often uh, have a uh, shell or plate design that is less defensive looking, like they close less completely and often have more fleshy bits just kind of poking out all the time. So uh, this relationship definitely helps the barnacles, but how does it affect the whales? That's not entirely clear. Uh, We talked about some arguments several different ways in the previous episode. It may hurt the whales by causing drag during swimming. Uh, This would, of course, reduce swimming speed and efficiency for the whale. It might possibly also help the whale in some cases by providing a kind of armor plating for violent encounters with orcas or uh, intraspecific aggression between, say, male humpbacks during mating season. Uh, but that's not certain. It's a, that's a maybe. But whatever the effect on the whales, it is normal to find gray whales covered in hundreds of pounds of barnacles by adulthood. So they've got a bunch of barnacles on there. In fact, gray whales have a particular specialist type of barnacle that is unique to them called Cryptolepos rachianecti. So that's the background, but I wanted to come back to barnacles because I was reading a really interesting article in Hakai magazine by an author named uh, Mara Grunbaum. This was published in November 2021, and the article is called What Whale Barnacles Know. Uh, Very interesting article, worth looking up and reading in full, but I just wanted to mention a few elements from it that caught my attention. Um, So one thing I don't think I fully clocked when we talked about whale barnacles in the previous episode is how big some of them get. Well, some mm. species of whale barnacles grow very large compared to most barnacles you would find attached to stationary surfaces. Uh, the article here compares them at the upper end to several things, uh, compares them to the size of a coffee mug, a tennis ball, or a clementine orange. Rob, I don't know how big the barnacles on, on the... Uh, the gray whales you saw were, but uh, some of these photos I've now seen with other objects for scale make you realize like, wow, those are some some beasts. Yeah, I mean, the ones I saw were pretty large. And then, of course, you would you, you would sometimes see them clumped together as well. So that kind of adds to the, uh, the feeling. But individually, yeah, some of them are quite large. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So there's one fact that is uh, offhandly alluded to in this article that I hadn't come across before, and it made me want to do some digging because I found it fascinating. Uh, but there is a passage where uh, Grunbaum writes, quote, These unbudging appendages, speaking of whale barnacles, of course, which colonize a dozen odd different whale species, latch on so tightly that they are practically part of the whale's skin. As a result, they were carried into caves by southern African people who foraged washed up whale meat 164,000 years ago. So, whoa, that's an image. Prehistoric people foraging whale meat. Uh, I don't know why I wouldn't have imagined that happened before, but it totally makes sense. So I decided to look up the primary evidence for this. Uh, I believe the author here is citing some findings from a place called the Pinnacle Point Cave 13B in South Africa, uh, in which fragments of whale barnacle were found. Uh, But this is not, in fact, the only case of whale barnacles being found away from the ocean in caves inhabited by prehistoric peoples, uh, giving evidence that these people foraged whale meat. Another example I came across was a cave in Spain, 
Um, this was written about in a paper by uh, Esteban Alvarez Fernandez et al., published in the Quaternary Journal in 2014. Uh, paper is called Occurrence of Whale Barnacles in uh, Nurja Cave, uh, Malaga, Southern Spain, Indirect Evidence of Whale Consumption by Humans in the Upper Magdalenian. And the authors write, quote, whale barnacles indicate that maritime-oriented forager human groups found stranded whales on the coast, and because of the size and weight of the large bones, transported only certain pieces, such as skin, blubber, and meat, to the caves where they were consumed. And so we have this evidence of consumption of whale flesh, soft parts of whale flesh, not the bones in these human caves, because the barnacles are in there. How else would the barnacles get into these human inhabited caves? They're, they're stuck to whales all the time. Um, so uh, because many whale barnacles are adapted to a particular host species, you can also tell in these cases what type of whale meat the people were eating. And in this case, it was uh, two different species of barnacle that are found on the southern right whale. That's also interesting because these whales are only found much farther south today. But the authors write, quote, because of Antarctic sea ice expansion during the last glacial period, these whales could have migrated to the northern hemisphere and reached southern Spain. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So these are not gray whales, but because gray whales also have associated barnacle species, you could, by the same method, potentially identify ancient ranges of gray whales by looking for evidence of their dedicated barnacles. And there's another way this article gets into that you could look at the prehistory of whales, that look at the ancient movements of whales by looking at barnacles. I'll get to that in a second, but first I wanted to mention a couple of other interesting facts. Um, so one thing is this article just describes some of like the difficulties in the research on whale barnacles. Like it's hard to acquire whale barnacles alive and study them, say to study their reproduction in the lab for obvious reasons and for less obvious ones. Uh, the obvious reasons would be like they are attached to living whales. And the less obvious reasons would be because these barnacles uh, are not as uh, they're not as hardy for taking them out of their natural environment because, for example, these uh, whale barnacles typically can't seal themselves shut completely. So they can't fully close mm -hmm. the door to keep the water inside when you remove them from their original context. So like you find a, a whale washed up on a beach, the whale barnacles on it will typically die pretty quick. Mm hmm. And so no one, the article stresses how nobody really has figured out yet the right way to care for and preserve the lives of these uh, animals once they are taken off of the whale they belong to. Uh, but there's another thing I wanted to emphasize uh, Grinbaum describes, which is the, the kind of. Uh, the more body horror aspect of the the uh, boundary point between whale and barnacle, which is maybe kind of a, a gray area. <laughs> it's like uh, where where one begins and, and the other ends. Uh, Grunbaum writes, quote, each of these barnacles has a shell structure specially evolved to anchor itself into its host's flesh. Many species have chambers within their wall plates into which prongs of whale skin grow upward, strengthening the barnacle's grip. And this uh, further explains actually like why it is hard to access living whale barnacles for research. It's not just a question of kind of like popping one of them off. It would generally require cutting into the whale's flesh to separate the barnacle from the whale. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and this this you know comes back to like why do the gray whales have their their signature appearance? And a lot of it is like part of it's the barnacles, but also like these gray sort of splotches on their body, uh, scars from various things, including scars from where uh, the barnacles were previously attached. Yeah, yeah, scars because they're like you know they they really like grab a hold. They get in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I've read about is that apparently the areas underneath the barnacles tend to become depigmented on whale skin, so you can mm-hmm. often see them by that. There they'll be like a different shade than the surrounding skin. Now we're going about to get into a really interesting area here because you know the, the thing about living your full life on a migratory large mammal like this is that. Your, your life cycle is in, intrinsically tied to the movements and life cycle of your host species. That's right. And uh, partially for this reason, there's so much we don't know about the whale barnacle life cycle. Uh, there's things we don't know about their cycles and their reproduction. They're just hard to study. So they seem to mate with other barnacles nearby on the same whale, uh, but they wait until the whales go to their coastal breeding and calving grounds to release their larvae. And these larvae are probably uh, guided by an attraction to a chemical signal that helps them find the whale skin. This could be a chemical emitted by other barnacles already present. So maybe there's kind of a, you know, a, I don't think quorum sensing is the right word that's from different, but, uh, you know, they, they sense a congregation of their kind. Uh, or it could be a biosignature from the skin of the whale itself. Maybe they're attracted to some kind of uh, signature mammalian molecule. Uh, they also have to do some crawling around on the whale as larvae before they cement themselves down because you don't just go anywhere on the whale. There are favored regions of the whale's body, often the forehead, the tail, and the forward-facing edges of the flippers. Uh, and I think this is because it increases their access to flowing water and the plankton in it. But uh, finally, there's a really big, interesting thread in this article that's about studying the chemical composition of whale barnacle shells to determine where whales travel. So barnacles are, they're, you know, they're shell builders. They are constantly building up new layers of their calcium carbonate plates. And at some point, researchers figured out that you could look at the layers of these plates, kind of like tree rings, But by analyzing the ratio of oxygen isotopes in each layer, uh, you couldn't just tell, you know, it's not just counting the tree rings. You could actually say a lot about the properties of the water in which each layer was formed. So what was the temperature of the water? What was the salinity, et cetera? And actually, you could then compare that information to things we know about different regions of the ocean at different times. And this would allow you, by proxy, to roughly track the migration history of the whale on which a barnacle lived by peeling back and analyzing the many layers of its plates. Uh, And researchers initially studied this on the shells of living or recently living barnacles, but it turns out you could even do this with fossilized remains of whale barnacles. And by this method, you can track the movements not only of, of living whales or recently living whales, but whales that lived hundreds of thousands of years ago. And that information in turn can help shed light on unsolved problems in whale evolution, such as when and why did baleen whales start migrating? Grunbaum writes, quote, 
One hypothesis suggests that it happened around 3 million years ago when massive ice sheets started spreading across much of the northern hemisphere. The colder temperatures would have frozen whales out of some of their habitats and put more constraints on where plankton could flourish in Earth's oceans. And uh, the, the patterns that came to exist in the, the locations of these, say, food and shelter resources would therefore lead to the establishment of migration patterns over time. We don't know exactly how it happened, but that's one idea. And so it, it, it seems like we can now maybe use fossilized whale barnacles to get some insight into what those ancient patterns of migration were when they changed and, and what, those, uh, what those changes might coincide with, say, in, uh, in the climate sphere. Mm. And this, of course, can help shed light on things today as well. It doesn't just tell us about the past because understanding when and why ancient whales started changing uh, their migratory patterns, for example, in relationship to ocean temperatures and sea level and so forth, that could help us understand what's likely to happen in the near future with oceans being affected by our rapidly heating planet. Uh, so anyway, uh, that was just a few notes from there, but uh, that article, What Whale Barnacles Know, very interesting, worth worth a read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about. It's easy to dismiss the barnacles as just this hanger-on, just this exoparasite of the whale, but uh, there's so much information tied up in the barnacle about the host species. Well, this has been uh, this has been a really fun journey. Uh, I've I've really enjoyed getting to dive in to researching the gray whale after getting to have this experience with them. Um, I guess some people would probably do this in reverse order, do their research and then have the experience. But for whatever reason, I end up doing it the other way around most of the time. But I enjoy it. I kind of that's one way to sort of draw out these experiences. Oh, I don't think it's a bad way at all. Experience and then reflect. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, I've, I've cited several authors and sources that were helpful in the research for these episodes, but I'd also like to throw in some hefty thanks to the local guides at the uh, Ojo de Leabre Lagoon, uh, some of which have been doing this, uh, this sort of guide work every year for something like 35 years, as well as the international tour guides uh, that I had there, uh, Keith, Hassan, and Donna in particular. Uh, Everyone was delightful and full of wonderful facts and observations about the whales. And I also really enjoyed the company of the folks that my family toured with, in case any of you out there happen to be listening. The great thing about a trip like this is that no one is in, that, that is there is just kind of, sort of, into whales. Like everyone, at least in my experience, everyone was really excited, uh, really into them, and, uh, and really compassionate for them. Uh, so, so, uh, so, yeah, uh, just a, a shout out, should any of you be listening. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close the book on this one, uh, but we'll be back with more episodes next week. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but on Mondays we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, to share something interesting, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.